Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 1 through 24. I'll give you a second to find that. Luke 14, 1 through 24. And this is from the ESV version. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to be taken to the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who had reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and have to go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and he said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Like I said, it's good to see each of you this morning. Uh, Pastor Eric is gone. He's searching for a place to live in Omaha, so please be in prayer for them, uh, that they would find something that's suitable for them. We are continuing our series through Luke, a series that will be paused for a few weeks as Eric closes his ministry here with a special series. But let's pray as we begin. Lord, this is your word, and I am your servant. Bring clarity of mind and tongue to me as I seek to proclaim the gospel to these sinners as a sinner. Amen. 
have a friend who lives just outside of Detroit, and uh, he lives in a very wealthy neighborhood, which is sort of a running joke between us. It's funny because he's not really wealthy. His parents didn't make much, and their house is very modest. Um, but they've lived there a long time, and the neighborhood just sort of, uh, yeah, slowly developed into the wealthy area that it is now. Uh, his current neighbors, they own one of the largest uh, car dealerships in all of Michigan, uh, which is perhaps an even bigger deal, just given that they're right outside of Detroit, you know, where the big three auto companies are. Uh, he used to live next to Nadamkin Sioux, you know, former first-round draft pick of the Lions, just won a Super Bowl with Tom Brady and the Buccaneers. But, but, you know, but if you saw his house, it would look very out of place, right? He's got this small house surrounded by homes worth like half a million or more. Uh, and so uh, it's just odd, right? But we have all sorts of things in society that we use to label people, to even sort of rank people. Uh, wealth is only one measure, although it might be the, the largest factor people use to evaluate others. Uh, but there's attractiveness, there's intelligence, there's a particular sense of what is quote-unquote proper. There might be skills that are valued over others. I remember meeting my wife's cousins, who are all roughly in our age range, but, uh, you know, I just met them and I immediately ranked myself way below all of them because I just graduated from undergrad, uh, didn't have a job, and here I am talking to these people only a, a little bit older than me who are performing open-heart surgeries on orphans in Africa and developing award-winning apps. And so, you know, uh, of course, this will come as no surprise to any of you that know us at all, but, like, my own wife is very successful. I mean, she's, she went to one of the best law schools in the country and is now, you know, staring injustice in the face and telling it to stand down daily. You know, basically, I married up, to which all of you were thinking, yeah, duh, uh, <laughs> you already knew this about me. But why do we evaluate people like this? Right? <clears throat> Everybody is different. While they might not have one quality, they have others. I think of brilliant professors I've had who, you know, they've, they've learned several dead ancient languages and they've written books and, you know, have all sorts of other, you know, intellectual uh, accomplishments. But I also know that these guys, just because you talk to them in class and stuff, and they'll mention the fact that they had to hire a plumber to fix their plumbing or, you know, they had to uh, get someone to, to look at their car, right? Both people are extremely bright, right, but just in different ways. And so someone, you know, you might have someone that's physically handicapped, but they can still be a great public speaker. Or someone might be poor, but they're extremely gifted in administrative work or intelligence or even just in their interpersonal skills. You know, some people just have a way with other people, right? But I think we're all guilty of doing this. We all have our own criteria by which we judge others. And usually, we value the sorts of areas that we're best at. You know, the pretty boy in high school might tend to only think that the attractive ones are worth their time. Uh, the one that is great with people might not see what the engineer is doing in solitude. They might not get it. Perhaps, though, we use these things for another reason, right? To make ourselves look or feel better. And this is the heart, I think, of what is happening in the first section of our passage today. So let's read that again. That's verses 1 through 6. One Sabbath, when he went in to eat at the house of one of the leading Pharisees, they were watching him closely. There in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. In response, Jesus asked the law experts and the Pharisees, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. He took the man, healed him, and sent him away. And to them he said, Which of you whose son or ox falls into a well will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? They could find no answer to these things. So our passage, it begins with Jesus going to one of the Pharisees' house to eat with them. And it happens to be on the Sabbath, and they see a man suffering from dropsy. Uh, 
Now the passage says that the Pharisees were watching Jesus closely. Um, and it even suggests that the word that they use there, uh, that he's being watched in such a way that they're sort of recording his actions for later. Um, now, that might sound like Thanksgiving dinner for some of us, right? Which is uncomfortable. But like Jesus, you know, it doesn't faze him. He's bold as always, and he's compelled to help this man. And so he simply looks at the Pharisees and challenges them. But how is he challenging them? Well, it's the Sabbath, and you are not supposed to work on the Sabbath. So interestingly, uh, ancient rabbis who were seeking to honor the command of resting on the Sabbath, they sought to define exactly what constituted as work. So uh, there are differing opinions on this, but it seems likely that the Pharisees held to a stricter definition of work, given their other battles with Jesus. Um, and so, uh, you know, they likely saw healing as a form of work, and therefore they prohibited it uh, on the Sabbath. And so uh, two prominent Jewish commentaries on the Sabbath lend uh, credence to this idea. One saying that only in the matter of a life or death situation are you permitted to uh, help someone. Uh, the other says that you shouldn't work to get an ox out of a well, but that basically you can make sure that it doesn't die before the Sabbath is over. You know, so you can bring it food or water, say it's stuck in a pit. You, know, you can just make sure, you can do enough to make sure that it doesn't die. Um, but you would need to wait until the Sabbath is over. Uh, yeah. However, scripture seems to say that it is necessary to help in these situations on the Sabbath. Deuteronomy 22.4 says that if you see your brother struggling with an ox, help him out. The concern here for the Pharisees is that Jesus is breaking the commands of God. And they prided themselves in being able to follow very specific rules on a, uh, a number of given topics. The problem is Jesus wasn't breaking the Sabbath. The law was meant to be understood as case law. So, uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of laws in the Old Testament, but really the way you ought to think about it, at least it's helpful to me, is that the Ten Commandments are sort of the core, right? That's the baseline that allows us to, uh, to understand uh, really the core of what it is that God is trying to do. So those don't really ever change, right? I mean, we still follow the Ten Commandments today. Uh, now, the rest of the laws in, in the scriptures, uh, those really are case law. And so it's seeking to apply the logic of the Ten Commandments and apply it to specific situations, right? And so, uh, you know, we have in this example, the Ten Commandments state to keep the Sabbath holy by not working on it. But then the case law is, what about when someone or some animal is in danger? And so the Bible clearly states to help the ox that has fallen. And Jesus is essentially saying that by healing this man, he is actually allowing this man to rest on the Sabbath. Uh, so he's not working. And that's his point. He says elsewhere that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Mark 2.27. So there's often some confusion here. Because some people seem to think that Jesus did break the Sabbath but that it was okay because there's something greater than the Sabbath. You know, he, he was trying to be loving towards this guy. Uh, but again, Jesus is not breaking the Sabbath. He's breaking the rules that were put in place by men, men who had missed the points already provided by the law, as we've seen. And so here's the problem, right? If you think that Jesus broke the Sabbath, there's, there's two issues with that. The first one is that in order for Jesus to be a proper sacrifice for our sins, he would need to be without blemish. He would need to be perfect. And that means that he would have to keep the law perfectly, right? Jesus even says that not one iota would disappear from the law, Matthew 5, 17. But if Jesus breaks the law, no matter how small, no matter what the circumstances are, he is a sinner. And a sinner is not a suitable sacrifice for the Lord who demands perfection, right? You can't fight sin with more sin. You can't fight disobedience unless you have obedience. And so uh, the second issue, though, 
is primarily with how this logic is applied to today. So uh, basically it goes like this. This is what I hear often, right? If Jesus broke the law, but he was justified in doing so, then theoretically you or I, we are also uh, technically able to break the law so long as we're justified, right? Now at its best, in taking that Jesus you know, teaches that the sum of the law is to love God and to love others, uh, the only justification you need is to be loving. Right? But terms get a little fuzzy there, right? Like, what does it mean to be loving in all these situations? Uh, you see, when Jesus gave the story of the Good Samaritan, right, and he summed up the law as being, uh, or summed it up as nicely as he had, uh, he's not erasing what the law had, had already said, right? There, you know, there were ceremonial laws in place, right, that the religious leaders were trying to observe. They didn't want to touch this body because it might be dead, right? Therefore, they'd be unclean. Now they're breaking sort of the ceremonial law. Uh, but Jesus, he's not erasing that. He's just saying, actually, there's something more important than that, right? Um, and so he's setting up the primary lens through which we need to understand the law. Loving God and others is a framework in which to understand the various laws given. But it doesn't negate the importance of what the law actually is as written. So here's what I see happen with a lot of Christians, right? Even thoughtful and engaged ones, is that in their attempt to love others... They fail to love God. And remember, the summary given by Jesus here, it included both, but it starts with loving God. And so God defines for us what it means to love him and what it means to love others. And so, no, you can't just worship however you want, right? God has a certain expectation of how he wants to be uh, worshipped. It's not okay to excuse sin in the name of love, right? Just, oh, you know, I don't want to offend them. Um, you know, love is the motivation of the law, but it never supersedes it. And so the law is nuanced, but it is not contradictory. You know, I hope to instill in my kids a sense of desire to help others. I also plan to have a curfew when they're older and they're able to kind of go out on their own. But if one of my kids ever came home late because they were helping someone, I wouldn't say that they broke curfew. I would say, really, they were upholding that first part of it, right? That, that I want them to really care for other people. Uh, <clears throat> So there's confusion, though, that happens on the other side of this. And that's exactly what this passage is speaking to. You must love others in order to love God. Healing a man is a good thing, and it is loving to both God and man. But why is it loving to God? Because this man was a child of God. And as we've seen, the law permitted you to help uh, those in need on the Sabbath, but especially your own children. And this is what Jesus means when he calls out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. They would immediately help their own in such a circumstance. If their child came to them with dropsy, like this man in the passage, and they, they had the ability to heal them, they would do it immediately, right? Like, regardless of whether or not it's the Sabbath, they would do it because it's their child. So their sin is that, you know, they're trying, uh, they're attempting to love God, but they fail to love the children of God. And they don't care because it isn't their child. And Jesus is challenging them to open their eyes and to see them as God sees them. Jesus sees this man, and he's moved compassion for him, because he sees it as his own child. Now, some of you may have noticed I'm wearing a t-shirt today instead of a dress shirt, and uh, that's intentional. And for some of you, this maybe bothers you, and I'm hoping it's not been too distracting. But, you know, is my work here invalidated this morning because I'm wearing a t-shirt? Uh, you know, Paul, he gives a lot of instructions on what a preacher should look like, you know, the sorts of things that they should be. But, but oddly, he never mentions anything about the clothing that they should wear. So, you know, 
why is it then, you know, we have these sort of man-made ideas about what a preacher should look like, what they should be wearing, you know, what's proper, etc., right? But those things can actually distract us from the core issues at hand, right? And in this case, it's what the Word is saying in Scripture. Uh, it shouldn't matter what I'm saying as I'm reading Scripture, right, preaching from it. But with the Pharisees, the point is the law. And so Jesus, he sees the man with dropsy, he has compassion, but the Pharisees, they have old eyes, and they only see the law as a litmus test for gauging how righteous they are. And they take pride in the law because it allows them to showcase their righteousness to other people. Which leads us to our next section. is verse 7 through 14. He told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they would choose the best places for themselves. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't sit in the place of honor because a more distinguished person than you may have been invited by your host. The one who invited both of you may come and say to you, give your place to this man, and then, in humiliation, you will proceed to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when the one who invited you comes, he will say to you, friend, move up higher. You will then be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He also said to the one who had invited him, When you give a lunch or dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors, because they might invite you back, and you would be repaid then. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So this passage, it talks about honor and shame and the relationship to status and prominence. And despite what it may seem, Jesus is not giving tips on how to climb the social ladder, although those principles probably still apply. Jesus is addressing two things here instead. One, the ways in which we seek to lift ourselves up socially, and two, how we parlay our prominence for selfish gain. Right? Jesus, he brilliantly points out something happening in real time and uses it to point to a deeper spiritual meaning. So there's a lot that could be said here, but I want to focus on the fact that Jesus is using this real banquet, uh, this thing happening right now, to point towards something infinitely more important. Uh, that's a future banquet. And as he has, uh, he has two things that he's trying to communicate here, one to the guests and one to the host. So first, Jesus is observing that this banquet looks nothing like the one that he is planning. Now, let's be honest, would our banquet be different from Jesus's, right? Like we're writing up our guest list. Are we specifically seeking out the least of these? Probably not. But like I said earlier, we all have different ways we look at people. We have certain qualities that we care about over others. And so maybe it isn't the wealthiness of someone that you care about, but maybe it is their social skills. Are they proper enough? Are they intelligent enough? Maybe it's simply that they need to know how to have a good time. Whatever it is, are we welcoming those who are outside of our own comfort zones? And here's the thing. We want to feel important. We want recognition for our accomplishments. And if we don't have any or any big enough to garner much attention, then we seek prominence by association. I'm reminded of the Weird Al Yankovic song, Lame Claim to Fame, uh, where he lists some really pathetic boasts. I'm going to read most of that song uh, because it's short, because it's funny, but also because I think it helps highlight how pathetic uh, our need for social standing is. And so I'm going to read this song, Lame Claim to Fame, by the musical, musical genius known as Weird Al. One time I was in the checkout line behind Steven Seagal. 
Once, I'm pretty sure, Mr. Jonah Hill was in the very next bathroom stall. My best friend's brother, well, he was an extra in Wayne's World, too. My neighbor's babysitter dated three of the guys in Motley Crue. I swear Jack Nicholson looked right at me during a Lakers game. And check it out, I bought a second-hand toaster from a guy who says he knows Brad Pitt. And I got me an email from the Prince of Nigeria. Well, he sure sounded legit. My sister used to take piano lessons from the second cousin of Ralph Nader. Last year, I threw up in an elevator next to Christian Slater. Well, guess what? My birthday and Kim Kardashian's are exactly the same. And once at a party, my dentist accidentally sneezed on Russell Crowe. I posted first in the comments on a YouTube video. I tried to sit by Steve Buscemi, but he told me this seat's taken. I know a guy who knows 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 Kevin Bacon. And I had a car that used to belong to Cuba Gooding Jr.'s uncle. A friend of mine in high school had jury duty with Art Garfunkel. And one time I was staying in the same hotel as Zoe Deschanel. I used the same napkin dispenser as Steve Carell at a Taco Bell. I don't mean to brag, but Paul Giamatti's plumber knows me by name. So, of course, these are all pathetic. And yet, deep down, I think we've probably all shared something similar, right? Uh, Pastor Earth's book is coming out next week. How many of us are going to end up saying, you know, oh, yeah, my pastor wrote this book, as if somehow that makes it as though we wrote it. Uh, we seek standing, though, right? It gives us a sense of accomplishment, of acceptance. And this, friends, it is not a harmless posture to hold. It is anti-gospel. Plain and simple, it defies everything the gospel is about. And it does so for two reasons. Number one, we are not prominent when comparing ourselves to Christ. We are nothing without him. Regardless of what we accomplish here in this world, we are lost, helpless sinners without him and his sacrifice. But it is also anti-gospel because despite the lack of prominence before him, God invites us to associate with him. We have nothing to offer him, and yet he offers himself to us. And that's where the host fails to recognize what the future banquet looks like. He has invited people with high standing over for dinner as a means for gathering for himself favors, stature, etc. Right? Jesus as host will invite those who can offer absolutely nothing to him. Jesus will invite the lowest of the low to his banquet. And as followers of Christ, do our lives reflect that? Do we offer people things even when they cannot give us anything in return? We want security, so we work to make sure that we get it, whether it be securing our place and acceptance in society or financially or whatever it is. But again, this is anti-gospel because Christ gave himself to us knowing that we didn't deserve it and knowing that we could never repay him. That is true generosity, right? Me giving someone $1,000 uh, is not generous if I expect something out of it, right? Uh, U.S. Bank is not generous for giving me our loan on our house, right? Unless they offered it at 0% interest, which I don't know if anyone here works at U.S. Bank. But if there is, I'd love to have you over for dinner sometime. You can even sit right next to me, right? No, of course. Like, this is the exact thing that Jesus is pointing out, right? And Jesus is truly generous. We cannot possibly earn our place at the table, and yet he offers it to us anyways. It would literally be incredible to believe this if not for the Spirit revealing it to us and helping us work through that and helping us believe. Jesus is a king, and he has a kingdom. And in that kingdom, this is how it works. The undeserving sitting at the same table as the king. Our final section illustrates this beautifully, while also serving, I think, as a stark warning to us. 
When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he told him, A man was giving a large banquet and invited many. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who were invited, Come, because everything is now ready. But without exception, they all began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see to it. I ask you to excuse me. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. I ask you to excuse me. Another said, I just got married, and therefore I'm unable to come. So the servant came back and reported these things to his master. Then, in anger, the master of the house told his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the city, and bring in here the poor, maimed, blind, and lame. Master, the servant said, What you ordered has been done, and there's still room. Then the master told the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and make them come in, so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, not one of those people who were invited will enjoy my banquet. Now this is a message for both believers and non-believers, or more accurately, those inside the church and those outside it. And there is a distinction, and, and friends, I'll give it to you straight, there's a huge distinction between believers and those who are simply inside the church. What do I mean? Well, in this parable, the ones first invited are likely meant to represent Jesus' company in this parable, or this story. The Pharisees, right? The religious elite. They're on the upper echelon of society, but what is their response in the parable to the man's invitation? They're too busy. Really, they fail to see who the man is and what he is offering them. Some people like to dig into each excuse. They, you know, they want to try to figure out what each thing meant. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think there is anything other than just sort of the broad principle that they were all busy with non-essential things. So it's a boring opinion. I apologize. But, but they all have something going on here, right? And so what's this man to do that's throwing the banquet? He has everything ready. Food is hot. Table set. Servants ready. Someone is going to eat this food. And so what does he do? He, he tells them to invite uh, everyone that is uh, disabled, poor, maimed, blind, right? Each of the least of these, they go out and they do it, and still there's room uh, for the banquet. And so then he sends them out to those outside of the city, and he says, invite them too. Bring them all in. And if you want an interesting interpretation, I think that we're meant to see uh, an allusion sort of to Gentiles being brought into the gospel. But, but there's a feast, and the Lord ensures that his house will be filled. And it's not going to be with the people that were initially invited. The person that got Jesus to share this parable, right? Like, he assumed that he would be a part of this future feast. And what Jesus responds is, uh, you know, don't be so sure. Don't be so sure. Remember, the Pharisees, they invited Jesus over, but they were watching him closely, right? They're judging him. They were not friends of Jesus, regardless of where he may have sat, right? Social standing didn't even mean anything in this context. We need new eyes to evaluate ourselves. The elite are not safe in the kingdom of heaven. And the elite, honestly, it's the people that go to church and think that they're good people because they go to church. Right? And they use that status to, to uh, look down on others. They are not safe in the kingdom of heaven. And it's the outcasts that are welcomed in. And so Jesus, he radically changes the world through this teaching. The early church, right, it had uneducated people leading uh, uh, 
prominent ministries within the church, yet women who are valued as human beings with a lot to give the world, unlike the Roman world, I mean, it was disproportionately like two-thirds male because women, uh, you know, if you were born female, they're often you were just killed. It, it was a waste. That, that's how they saw it. Not so in the church. Young children were thought of as blessings and not obstacles, right? And Jesus was hated for this. Why? Because everything the world had worked so hard for in securing power for themselves, even at the expense of others, was being undone. And so if you're winning in this game currently being played, you stand to lose quite a bit when Jesus steps in and he changes the game. So we resisted. And certainly the Pharisees, they resisted all these changes. I'm sure all the Pharisees thought that they were right with God because their special checklist said that they were okay with God. But they completely missed the point of the so-called checklist in the first place. So what are we to do with all of this, right? We need new eyes. We are so used to being in this world that we hardly notice all the ways in which we participate in the brokenness of it. We, uh, we, we fail to see it because we're a part of it, right? It's, it's right in front of us, but it's too close. But Jesus, in offering himself to us, he transforms us by his grace. And we need to see our sin for what it is. And we, do, we need to see just how far we are from God. We hide behind the laws of God. Uh, you know, we ignore their motivations so that we can feel good about ourselves without actually having to be good. And this passage got me thinking about what it would be like for me to invite a homeless person over for dinner. And I couldn't even just in my mind see it happening because, uh, you know, I, I just I started to feel convicted a little bit about that because it was so far from where my heart was. I, I just, I don't know, it was broken by the fact that, like, I can't even imagine doing this. And then I remembered, you know, I've got kids, I've got a wife, you know, I'm, I'm a husband, a father, I have obligations, right, biblical ones even, to watch out for their well-being. And so, you know, I started to feel a little relieved because, you know, it would probably be unwise to just invite a random homeless person over for dinner, right? Uh, I, I need to care for my kids. So I had about five seconds of peace until an unwelcome thought entered my mind, which was, what about 20 years from now when the kids are gone? What about helping out now in other ways, right? You see, it was never really about healing on the Sabbath. Just like for me, it was never really about protecting my family. The truth is, and much to my shame, is that I do not see the least of these as God's children. Not really, anyway. When I lived in Chicago, I learned within a year or so which routes I could take to get dinner that would mostly avoid the homeless. Uh, you know, I knew I had to get off of Chicago Avenue and I would have to walk some of the back streets, right, that, that weren't so prominent. I wanted to avoid them. I didn't want to have to care for them. I, I didn't want to be bothered. My excuse then was that I didn't have any money. And in fairness to myself, was almost literally true at various points in my college career. Uh, I remember seeing $2.50 in my account, and I was excited because I'd be able to get two whole items off the dollar menu at McDonald's. Uh, but it wasn't about the money then, because I have money now. And I still don't always give like I should. I suspect I'll have an excuse for every situation in my life, if I allow it. And so here's a test, right? When you're on 11th and Sandy Hollow, what do you feel? What thoughts enter your mind as you encounter the homeless there? Do you see these people as lazy, good-for-nothings? Do you see them as wastes? And notice, like, I'm not talking about policies here, right? Because, you know, not that it's not important, but, like, 
you know, I'm not asking what should we do about the homeless in America. I'm simply asking, like, how do you feel about this? Because so often we can jump behind policy to avoid diagnosing our own hearts in those situations. You know, uh, and, and this goes both ways, right? I mean, the liberal can easily say, oh, you know, I voted for policies that, that positively affect the homeless, you know, and so, uh, you know, I, I did my part. Let the government take care of them. I don't have to deal with them right now. Uh, the conservative, right? I mean, they can look at this and they can say, you know, it doesn't even matter how I feel because there are opportunities available for these people to put themselves in better situations. Neither person, though, in this scenario is really asking themselves the question about how they are showing compassion towards this person. Jesus, he calls the least of these to himself. He called every believer here to himself. And we all have to reconcile the fact that someone as wonderful as Jesus loves someone as cruel and as wicked as us. But when we understand this, we're given new eyes as part of our new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, and we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are ambassadors for Christ. Do we see others the way that Christ sees us? Is your heart moved to compassion like Christ was when he saw the sick? Like, stop caring about your status in this world that's passing away, and those structures simply do not exist in the age to come. Why cling to them? Like, what do you have to gain from that? To be a Christian is to love those who are unlovable. It starts with seeing them as Christ saw us, but it must also move beyond empathy. At some point, we are also called to action. And we're without excuse there because we were given the Spirit to empower us to do every good work. The kingdom of heaven is unlike anything else. We will all die one day. And in the resurrection... Those that had everything will have nothing, but those that had nothing will have everything. I think of my mom, who has been single for over 35 years, yet she's fostered over 150 kids since 1970. She adopted four of us. My mom has almost nothing to her name, but she has Christ. And there's people like my mom, unknown in our time, that will have prominence in the age to come, in the resurrection, resurrected life. For those who have relied on their power, their wealth, their status, skills, whatever it is, God invites you to see just how much better his ways are. See how empty everything else is in comparison. For those who recognize that you're an outsider, come. You're welcome here in the house of Christ. Every one of us was an outsider at one point, And yet God lovingly called us to himself and brought us in. He extends that call to all of his children who were once enemies and especially the unlovable. So come, taste and see the paradox for yourself. Sit and feast with love for himself. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word, and for the ways in which Jesus challenges us. Lord, that we are able to witness this account 
maybe not in person, but on the pages here of Scripture. We thank you for preserving them for us. Father, I pray for new eyes to see, Lord, that we would not be stuck in our ways, but to recognize the work that you're doing through Christ. Lord, that that you would soften our hearts. They would begin to see people as you see them and care about them as if they were our own. Father, I pray that you give us grace as we struggle to do this, as we struggle to break out of our comfort zones. But Father, I also pray for opportunities to do so. And uh, I just ask that, uh, that each of us would encourage one another to be faithful in that regard. 